0: Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Today, we are happy to again have on the show author Tom Westcott, whose book, Ripper Confidential, New Research on the Whitechapel Murders, has just been released. Tom's previous book, The Bank Holiday Murders, The True Story of the First Whitechapel Murders, published in 2013, received widespread praise in the Ripperologist community. And his new book is already receiving positive reviews, and more importantly, creating discussion, which in itself must be an encouraging sign for any ripper author. So welcome Tom Westcott to the show again.
1: Hi, Tom. Mingus the Merciless. (laughs) How are you doing? Man, how the hell are you, you crazy so-and-so? I'm hanging in there.
0: It's been a rough week.
1: So. It has. I've been watching you on Facebook. I cyber-stalked the hell out of you. I know. I know. spent the day yesterday in a Beatles t-shirt and black arms changing a starter because you're too cheap to take it to a mechanic, but I respect that. So you're taking a <laughs> starter out of your old Chevy and putting a new one in.
0: That is true. That is true. And uh, during breaks, reading your new book, Ripper Confidential.
1: Oh, well, with your black hands, you got oil all over that. I hope, uh, it better be on your Kindle, dude. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It was the uh, iPad version. Now, today's show is only going to focus on the murder of Marianne Nichols and Bucks Rowe. And you'll come back on the show in a few weeks for a part two, since there's so much in your book to discuss. Is that all right, Tom? And that's plan. You discuss in the introduction why you decided to write, compile, and organize your new book as
1: you did. So can you briefly explain that process to our listeners? Yeah, I'll actually tell you some stuff that's not in the introduction, um, but it's no secret. Years ago, people might remember me talking about how I wanted to do a book called The Burner Street Mystery that focused on Liz strive And I had spent years publishing essays that I was going to turn that into a book and fill in some areas and stuff like that. And uh but I had also written at following bank holiday murders, I had started writing the section on Polly Nichols and originally as a chapter, and that's how bank holiday murders start out. I start writing a chapter. I don't know when to shut up. It turns into a book. So Polly Nichols I start writing a chapter. And then I keep finding stuff and adding stuff and it's too long to be a chapter, but it's way too short to be a book, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought about putting that out as like an ebook um, and then putting out the Burner Street Mystery as like a kind of a regular short book like Bank Holiday Murders And, and then but I also had a lot I, then I got a different idea. I said, what if I just shoved those two together and did an essay book and that's how that came about. And then I thought, well, you can't have two sections. You got to have three, right? And I said, so why don't I use the third one to present some stuff that's unrelated to Nichols and Stride, but that I want that I like, um, like uh, Mary Kelly and the Decadence. That's just a fun article, and I and people liked it when it came out. I thought a new generation would like it, and and then I wanted to talk also about the Gulston Street. You know, I'm using quote signs here, graffito, because that's the dismissive term Fido uses, and it's stuck, so why not just use it? GSG, what have you. Right. I wanted to write, a, I had a lot to say about that, and I'd never said it, I'd never written about it, so I thought this is a great opportunity to toss that in there as well. And so, what I decided Ripper Confidential would be is really just a potpourri of various aspects of the case that personally interest me and intrigue me. Because no one ripperologist is an expert in every element of the case. You know what I'm saying? And I'm certainly not. I, if you wanted to talk if you wanted to know all about Mary Kelly, I would not be the guy to come to. Um, I think I, I mean, I know quite a bit about Mary Kelly, obviously and all that, but there are people like Ben Home, and you know and, and a number of others who've really zeroed in and they know all the they just off the top of their head can tell you all sorts of stuff that I would not be able to do. But if you wanted to talk about Liz Stride, um, then yeah, I would be one of the guys you would want to talk to about that. And so, and I'm certainly not a, or wasn't anyways, a a Polly Nichols. You know, I don't know where that came from. It's, it's. I think just bank holiday murders, and then I started looking at Polly, and I kept looking and kept looking, and so I, I don't know that I'm as qualified to talk about her as Liz Stride, who I've spent the last like 17 years really looking at, but you know, Oh, well, whatever you put it out there and what happens happens.
0: Right. I, I, I thought that that was interesting as well, because you are more known at least, uh, f- from a few years ago, uh, almost, uh, focusing on Liz strides murder to the exclusion of everybody else for a time there. But with, uh, your new book starting out with the Bucks row murder, it, you can almost draw a line between the bank holiday murders and then into the murder of Marianne Nichols. Right. You know, it's a continuation and you refer back to your first book a few times in the first section on the Buck's row murder. And we'll talk about some of the similarities that, you've noted, uh, in your new book, which I find pretty interesting. But first off, um, let's talk about the, the material that you present biographically about Marianne Nichols isn't necessarily new. If you're one of uh, us obsessives that follow message board discussions and, and and revelations that are being unearthed by various researchers that post on the internet, but it's the first time that it's been put out in book form. Uh, So we, what we knew about Marianne Nichols in, in as you say in your book, and that's repeated as ad nauseum in, every Ripper book practically you can pick up is we were aware of her, uh, scuffle with the police in Trafalgar square for sleeping in the rough. And we were aware that she got a job as a housekeeper for private couple and absconded with some of their clothing that she stole from her employers.
1: So using the word absconded, huh? I said you get two points for using the word absconded. That's a big word.
0: Oh, thank you. Uh, um, So, and that was basically every all that you know you would pick up essentially about her character in 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 your run of the mill Ripper book, right? So, why don't you go into what 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 type of person Marianne Nichols might have been, and and what's what knew about her? uh, Well can be discovered by reading your, your books.
1: This stuff has been in many, if any, Ripper books, has it? Um, maybe yeah. it has. Uh, usually what they do is they have her sleeping in the square in December, and and that's not the case. It was earlier than that. And the new stuff in my book, um, and you're right, uh, most of the stuff I use comes from, Uh, discoveries that were posted to JTR forums or casebook.org or both. And here's the shocking part. It wasn't posted six months ago, right? It was posted like eight years ago. (laughs) And, And how many Ripper books have come out in the last eight years and haven't used this material? It shocks me because it's, it's amazing stuff that would be very useful to, um, I think rip, Ripper readers who are hungry for new details. And that's that's kind of my focus and everything I do when I publish is, is you know, if someone's going to give me money for something, I want to give them something back. And if they love it or they hate it, I don't want them to be bored with it. That's the big thing, right? right. I want everyone to get some value out of out of whatever I do. Even if 90% of it is crap, if you like that 10%, it resonates with you and you carry that into your own work or whatever, <clears throat> then I've done my job. So that's what I've always keep my eyes out. When I read the boards or people post stuff, it's certain things just kind of stick out at me and I, and I go, ooh, I'm coming back to that. Because it means something to me, it's probably going to mean something to other people who share the same interest I do. And with Polly Nichols, what kept... You know the thing about her is is she wasn't some wilting lily. she was big and buxom. she was a strong girl, she was not skinny. um she could take care of herself. she had an attitude. I think she had probably more in common with Emma Smith than we might realize, and you know you look at like Annie Chapman, she was sick you know in her final week on her, and here she is uh, getting into fisticuffs with younger women, so I think you know these women. You know, they were vulnerable, usually because of alcohol, but they could also take care of themselves. They they might not should have been your, if you're out to pick a fight with a woman, they shouldn't be your first choice. And so what does this tell us about Jack the Ripper? That's the resounding question. When you learn that Polly Nichols was the rowdiest woman in the square, you know, she gave the police a run for their money. She may have pulled a knife. Um, on a workhouse official. This is if this is the kind of person she could be, then uh, you know what does that say about the guy who was able to subdue her uh, relatively quietly and and kill her? You know what does that tell us about him and what he's capable of? So that's the kind of questions I pursue. That's why this stuff is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten a little bit of feedback on just a single line that I made where I talked about, well, maybe Polly was a police informant. And yes, that is speculation. It doesn't even mean I believe that. You know, in my book, there's a lot of things I might present. um, But it doesn't mean I necessarily subscribe to that myself. I just feel obligated to say, this is a possibility um, based on the evidence. But that doesn't mean that's my preferred possibility or something I even necessarily believe. You know what I mean? Um, So some of the new stuff we're talking about, Polly, uh, not about her as a person per se, um, but about her case. There's quite a bit of it. And, again, I use the term new loosely because a lot of times this stuff has been discussed on message boards, but uh, not necessarily written out the way I have done it here and put my own stamp on it. But, like, talking about... uh, how I think it's possible that her uterus was taken or something was taken from her by her killer, contrary to what every Ripper book up to this one has said, which was that it's an ascertained fact that no organ was missing. That is not, it's not, and I'm not, there's a difference between saying it might have happened and saying that I believe it happened. Big difference. I'm just saying it's not an ascertained fact that nothing was missing from her, what it looks to me like is that uh Dr Llewellyn uh didn't do necessarily the most thorough autopsy um as he as say you know Dr. Collier before him or Dr. Phillips after him right right if he did he certainly didn't get into any detail about it. he didn't seem to know the health of the organs or anything um in de- you know in defense of Llewellyn, I'll say this. He had no reason to expect an organ would be missing so because Tabram wasn't missing anything, etc. So that wasn't part of his thinking. Um, during the his relatively quick autopsy that had began just a few hours before he sat down and the inquest and gave evidence, he had police coming and going with witnesses. He had reporters there talking with him and doing So, yeah, I don't know how thorough it was, but... Um, He did have to go back just to look at a facial scar that he should have already noted and didn't, and that that was mentioned by her father at the inquest. And then when it came to, after Polly was buried under the ground, Annie Chapman was murdered, and, of course, her uterus was missing, which caused people to say, I wonder if Polly's was missing. And when asked about this, Dr. Llewellyn, who should have been able to state with absolute authority, I looked at her uterus with my own eyes, what he said instead was, I don't believe it was missing. And that's the best he could give. Um, Now, I don't think you would have heard Dr. Phillips or Dr. Collier say, well, I don't believe her uterus was missing, because they actually talked about these organs. They, they, They knew what was there and what wasn't. So but not Dr. Law. he said, I don't believe it, but it was too late to look because she was under the ground. So yes, Polly Nichols, um, Jack, now the repercussions of this, if her uterus was missing, in fact, which we'll never know, but if we at least agree it was a possibility, then that makes the case for Charles Cross as Jack the Ripper, just a wee bit harder because he had to have been interrupted by Robert Paul, um, And other things that I, I talk about Harriet, the witness Harriet Lilly, um, in a little more depth in my book than in other books. And, uh, and I point out the myth uh, that she was woken from her sleep and heard moaning and all this. Uh, that was a myth. She was wide awake that whole time. She was an awake person before, during, and after she heard the things she heard which makes her a viable witness. Every bit as viable as, say, Albert Kadosh.
0: Right, uh, before you get into that, you're covering a lot of ground uh, without uh, me posing a question. But,
1: no, but I am. Sorry about that. I was to Polly, so I'm going over some of the news. Right,
0: right. But I wanted to... Uh, reiterate kind of what the, the way, the way you describe her injuries in your book. I mean, the, normally we like to look at the Ripper murders, even taking into account Smith and Cabram, uh, as, as a, a, the Ripper refining his technique as they as he goes along from the earlier murders to Chapman and Eddowes and leaving Stride out of the equation for now, but then then ultimately, you know the horror he commits in Miller's court. Whereas uh, the way that you approach her injuries and in describing her injuries, I think is the first time I've really read it in in this way. That you compare a lot to Tabram and Chapman in some some circumstances, but it also to me, particular the ripping from the pelvis up to the breastbone, reminds me more of Edo's. You know, if what you're saying is true, that organs were removed, and I think uh, I agree with you. We'll never know, but but it's but I, I do i do believe since reading your interpretation it makes it a 50-50 possibility and then when you throw in things that you also discuss like the blood stains leave, leaving the scene of the crime and everything um those chances might increase slightly to be more um more more towards the side of the organs were removed uh, well, it, it kind of throws out the window this whole escalation of the ripper's technique
1: well, if there's, I agree with you. 50 50 that he did or not. That's very fair. I would say if you look at intention, then it's more like 90 10 because if you, you look at the wounds on her abdomen, they intersect over a certain part. Um, now, so this wasn't mad slashing or stabbing, these were uh, cuts for a purpose. Um, and that would be to pull a flat back and reach in. And. The, uh, so if he didn't, his intention was in fact to reach in and grab something. That's what he was doing there. That's what, that's what was happening. Um, now her flap was open when she was on the mortuary slab, her intestines were protruding. And as I point out in the book, that can be for one of two reasons. One, he did in fact reach in and grab something and take it with him. Or it could have been when they picked up her body. And it bent. Dan Norder had pointed out to me years ago, and I thought it was very smart that he noticed that 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 could have been caused by her being picked up and moved, uh, and that could have forced get her intestines out a bit, and uh, and that's what they saw on the slab. Um, so we don't. That's the thing. Is a lot of times it's you have two options that are both kind of fifty fifty,
0: mm-hmm. and and that that theory that her. Her intestines began to protrude in the act of being moved onto the hospital cart has kind of stuck.
1: Right, lot in Ripper lore, and that's one of the frustrating things about it.
0: Mm-hmm. The injuries that you describe with uh, Nichols bridges a gap between the earlier murders. So not only by describing them in in, in a way that they such resemble. Chapman and Eddowes. There is also wounds that are eerily similar to what were inflicted on Tabram and Emma Smith. So it's almost like a combination of those earlier murders and the later murders coming together with Nichols.
1: Right, the bridge, exactly. Yeah, and um, you know, it's and this is important stuff again, and especially in trying to understand who Jack Thurber might have been. Um, I think most of us agree nowadays that Polly Nichols doesn't look like anybody's first murder. Um, whoever Jack the Ripper was, Polly Nichols was not the first woman he murdered. That doesn't mean Tabram or Smith were or Emily Horsnell. Um, but there were, you know, this couldn't have been his first. It just wasn't now. So I think what I look at is stuff like Martha Tabram's murdered. Um, her inquest is closed the next weekend. Polly Nichols is murdered, and you see that repeated again. You know, uh, Ripper's watching the papers as soon as uh, Nichols and uh, uh, Chapman's inquests are over. What happens? What happens that weekend? Two more, two more, you know, two inquests in, two more women murdered. Um, so, yeah, there's a pattern here. There's also an upgrading of the hardware from certainly Smith to Tavern, Tabram to Nichols, Nichols to Chapman. Uh, there's an upgrading of the hardware happening that whole time. So if it were different killers, then there's some remarkable coincidences occurring uh, during this frame, time frame. And, you know, in Bay holiday murders, I suggested that Martha Tabram had been sexually violated with a sharp instrument. Uh, and and I point to the positioning of her legs for this purpose. Her legs were positioned by the killer; um, they were bent up and out and spread, and her skirts lifted. There's a reason for this. And uh, and then there's a pool of blood down there that um, you know, that pool of blood. It's not accounted for. So yeah, I think that's exactly what happened to Tabram, which, as we know, occurred with a blunt instrument to Smith. And then I looked at nickels, and, and, you know, I'm, maybe I'm seeing faces in clouds and that's fine, but what I see is another pool of blood under, you know, uh, between her legs. And I see two stabs on the outside of her vagina and I'm suggesting that a knife was in fact inserted in and out uh, and those two stabs are a byproduct of that versus being just lone cuts that just mysteriously appear for no reason. Um, and that uh, and that the pool of blood is because she was being essentially raped with this knife. And, you know, it makes sense if it's the evidence, um, and, you know, if I am correct, and, of course, that clearly ties a very, you know, just an obvious bridge to the previous two murders, and that allows us to go back a little further in time to see who Jack the Ripper might have been, and then I would suggest he might be someone with an association to a couple houses on George Street.
0: Right, and you had mentioned uh, Jack the Ripper reading the newspapers and following the coverage, which is, uh, as a theorist, uh, you might be in the minority in believing that. It will never be known for sure, but you know how... Uh, the, because of serial killer, killer profiling, and, and, and this is also a, a, a topic that you discuss later on when you, and we'll get to later on about the Goldstone Street Graffito um, following press accounts of the Ripper murders and having that influence his behavior, I do see a lot of uh, Ripperologists who take the opposite uh, opinion that oh he probably you know the maniac or illiterate would wouldn't be following the, the press reports um, so so you might be I don't know if, if this if what I'm saying is true or not but I my impression is that you might be in the minority of those who believe that he was actually actively following press accounts of his murders in the inquests um, as they were taking place and things like that and altering his behavior it, Uh, based upon those but and not not only those but other murders that like the the one in bertley um as you get into uh later on in your book uh, influencing his behavior so and you can address that and also
1: if you would touch on in this case what you're saying is true that the majority of religious think he was illiterate and didn't follow his own press or they're wrong
0: right um and like I said, I don't know if that's, if a, if a poll has ever been done, but I do see that a lot. Um, it kind of falls hand in hand with, like you point out in your Goulston Street, uh, chapter of him, um, not having anything to do with writing the Ripper letters, you know. It's kind of like the Yorkshire Ripper syndrome in a way. Um, he doesn't, he didn't, he ends up not communicating at all with the police or, 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 you know. And that that type of thing. So whether he followed his own press accounts, you know, is is a question that's still being debated. Um,
1: I don't see how though, uh, because the people, if if anyone thinks he didn't follow his own press, then they are one of those people who believe everything they don't like is just one big coincidence. And I can't, I don't subscribe to that. When you look at the murders happening, inquest ending that weekend, another murder, and this keeps going on, um, along with the various other quote unquote coincidences that occur, I don't see how you can reach any conclusion other than this guy committed these murders and could not wait for the newspapers to come out, could not wait to go to the pub and hear the talk. Um, I, and, and in fact, Jack the was a human being, you know, he was, and it would be like me putting out a new bug and then, not even being curious to what any critics have to say, not bothering to look at the new Ripperologist to see what Paul Beg might have to say. Um, You could theorize that I'm doing that, but it's like would that even make sense? So it's like, that's how I look at it. Jack the Ripper being a human, like you or me, he wants to know what people are saying about him. Um, Like really badly wants to know. He also is kind of curious, hey, do the police have a clue about me? Yeah, you know, so he reads... And he gets emboldened by the fact that, you know, Chapman ends. Um, Dr. Phillips is in awe of his abilities. The police are saying, we haven't the slightest clue who this dude is. So what's he do? Goes out and kills two women. Makes perfect. But then something happens on or shortly after the double event, and he does disappear um, for a month or more. So... Uh, yeah, I, I think if anyone's going to argue that he didn't follow the press or anything, that's, it's a, that's a tough, tough argument to make. And your only argument is, oh, everything is a coincidence. And that's not really an argument in my opinion.
0: And back to the Emma Smith uh, murder. And I just want to clarify this uh, because it's somewhat confusing is that uh, her account of her own assault, um, claims that it it was perpetrated by a gang of people. So is is your idea possibly that one person from that gang split off and continued to do these types of murders as a solo offender?
1: No, my idea is there never was a gang, because uh, Emma Smith did not know she was going to die from her injuries. She did not know they were fatal. She had gone to the hospital to get treatment. One thing you do not do is tell them you're a prostitute and that you are out soliciting. Um, so she had to have a story um, as to what happened to her. So thus the story of a gang of uh, three people. I don't know who they are, no idea. They attacked me when I was just minding my own business, and they did this to me. Um, versus telling them either a, it was a guy I know, um, or, or B I was soliciting, we went to a dark spot and this is what happened to me. Um, so yeah, I'm suggesting this, the gang doesn't exist and never did.
0: And, and so the, so then, then, as you said, the possibility arises that, she, that she might have known her attacker.
1: Well, sure. Yeah. That's all, that is possible. Uh, that she knew her attacker but at the same time there's nothing to suggest that she or any of the other victims knew their attacker there's there's just nothing i mean it's just a possibility but there's nothing that suggests that right. you know and, what i'm saying
0: right and you do that quite often um where as the the current discussion surrounding your book as we talk today has to do with things that that readers interpret as maybe you, um, stating something as a certainty or as a fact, whereas you also use, use often in, in your book, you know, the phrase one interpretation is, and so there is, there is this, um, argument about, you know, whether you're stating something as fact or whether it's just a certain interpretation that you, and you actually address this in your book, how uh, as a historian, you're, you have to take the data that's available to you and, and draw your own conclusions and make your interpretations based on that. And that's not necessarily saying that someone else could very well have the exact opposite interpretation. And, and, be wrong in their interpretation, right? Is that kind of the way you approach this, is that there's no absolute 100% correct interpretation of the data? It's it's just because then it would make it a fact, if you follow me.
1: Yeah, no, I do. i totally with you. Uh, and I'd like to think it's ever evolved. Uh, as I always say, and I keep saying, You know, I want people to prove me wrong. Um, I want people to prove me right. The main thing is I want people to keep looking. That's the whole thing. That's the whole purpose of this. Um, I will be proved right on some things. I'll be proved wrong on others. I couldn't care less. Uh, None of this is ego for me. Um, It just is what it is. You know, it's fun. I want everyone to enjoy the book and have fun with it. Uh, you know that's the main, th- and then go look, go look, and find new stuff, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't think I make a habit of presenting my opinion as a certain fact. Uh, I don't know that anyone has suggested that, or if they do, they're you know they're just they're they're I don't know. I don't want to say anything too nasty, but um, yeah. So uh, I present certain things, and I, and I make mistakes, and all of that. Here and there, not a whole lot, not like what you hear out there, where everything in my books a mistake. Um, but uh, there's a, you know, you make some mistakes, you correct them later if you can. The main thing is, um, Ripper writers, authors uh, should step forward and take more chances. They, have, a lot of them, they're very smart people. They have good ideas. And I think sometimes they're reticent to put their own ideas forward for fear of the backlash they're going to get. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And and so when those ideas aren't put on the table to be picked apart, uh, it stifles our learning a bit. And and I think some people think it's all about digging up more dry facts and putting out more dry facts, and that's an important part of the process. But it's the author's job to take these facts and put them together and internalize them over a period of time and then see what makes sense and then make some sense of them. And when you do that, you take everyone's knowledge of the case forward. I would like to think that the 80 pages I spend on Polly Nichols takes our understanding of that murder forward by leaps. Um, And, and then, you know, in, in terms of showing here's what happened in Bucks Row that night, here's how, she was silenced. Here's, she was laid down. Her head was turned to blood. Uh Her face was crushed and possibly her nose broken. Her, her neck ripped open. All this stuff. This is what happened. This is the kind of guy you're looking for. It's this guy. And um, he did this, and then he walked away, and no one knew who he was. And then he did it again and again and again. That's not a madman. If so, oh, he's a madman who didn't read the papers. Well, then they're not reading the same case materials that I am. You see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. And and so back to Bucks Row, you discuss in your book the dif- different blood trails that were reported and then seemingly not reported um, by by uh, by different witnesses and police officials. Um, from what I understand, there were indications that going that would lead lend credence to your orgis, organ harvesting um, theory that blood trails actually left the scene of the Pauli Nichols murder. And then also, you discussed blood that was discovered in Brady Street, mm-hmm. which, which you separate out from the, the Buck's Row blood. Right to discuss an attack that might have been there was an attack on a margaret millhouse is how you call in the uh, call her in the book and other people say it may be mallows or you know given all different um, interpretations of her last name um so i want to talk about those two those two parts um Mm -hmm. Does a uh, f first, uh, first off, does a trail of blood um that you that you discuss leading away from Polly Nichols, I mean obviously that would indicate the direction of travel for the killer after her murder. And that, that is going up
1: to Brady Street, is that correct? No. No, uh, and Bucks Row there's not a trail, there's like one blood stain a short distance from her body and personally what I think that was is when they loaded her body onto the cart um, and started pushing her away, I think that may have spilled some blood um, that's probably, I mean that's the innocuous explanation for it um, you know, that's the other one is of course that he was absconded with her uterus and some spilled out when he was putting it away or cleaning his hands that was suggested actually by a newspaper that he had stepped away and was cleaning his hands uh, or something else. But I think it's probably just innocuous. They loaded her body up, some blood dripped off. Um, and that would explain the one drop in Buck's row. Uh, but the Brady street blood completely different. Um, there is no trail leading from Brady street to the body of Polly Nichols. There was, uh, a, you know, according to Miss um, uh, Coldwell, there was a bloody handprint outside of Honey's Muse. According to other sources, there were numerous bloodstains dripping, running from that direction, you know, like towards the turning of Bucks Row, not down Bucks Row, but in that direction, which is the same direction the Coldwells heard a woman's running and screaming murder um, that night. So I think there was probably numerous, you know, small bloodstains, that because they were small, they couldn't determine if they were blood or not they they were later on they appeared to be of a darker color than what they might expect blood on pavement to look like and so they couldn't be determined to be blood for sure but inspector helson did make clear that there was one suspicious uh one blood mark that he used the word suspicious for Uh, and that would most likely that have to be the bloody handprint i don't see what else it could be and so you know when you have a bloody handprint, you have a running woman screaming and we know that woman is not Polly Nichols because she did not have bloody hands uh, so that had nothing to do with Polly uh, something else happened on Brady Street that night and uh, you know it involved a woman and that's all we know I don't know anything else than that but I did get the idea of looking at uh, London Hospital Registers and eventually I got them for the whole month of September. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't make for uh, fun reading. Um, cause you see a lot of women, you know, who were sent there by their husbands. If you, if you get my drift and, uh, as well as many other terrible maladies that, you know, the treatments for at the time. But to get back to, there was a woman named Margaret Millis. She uniquely, um, fitted the description of someone I might be looking for. She had a, a bad injury to her arm, the radial, art- radial artemy in her arm, which would, of course, cause her to bleed out and get a bloody hand. I might add that a bloody hand can be caused, you could get a cut on your head. Your head bleeds profusely. You put your hand to it. So, I mean, uh, and I talk about that in my book. Uh, there's no absolutes. But if we, except there was a bloody handprint in Brady Street, a woman screaming around that time, And then there's a woman with a bloody arm showing up at the London Hospital. Um, A rational mind might draw a line between those three things and suggest they're related. And then subsequently, in the weeks later, numerous newspaper reports are coming out talking about a surviving victim of Jack the Ripper. And they all have different details and this and that. Um, none of them seem to have a complete story or accurate details. So none of those, you, you read them, none of them require you to conclude that Margaret Mellis was the woman in these newspaper reports. By the same token, you can't exclude her. Um, she did spend a, quite a long time in the hospital, and then she suddenly gets out of the hospital and in these newspaper reports start appearing, So I think it's very possible, maybe likely that they're all referring to the same incident. Now since my book has been published, you mentioned earlier Mallows, the name Mallows that's coming um, from some researchers who read my book and then started looking into it and there's someone whose name I only know is Mystery Singer. I I wish I knew his or her real name so I I could give him credit, but I'll say Mystery Singer on casebook.org who's posted some really neat stuff that I can't wait to find out more about. But, I mean, like, seemingly overnight turned up all this interesting stuff about Margaret Mallows, right. um, who Mystery Singer believes uh, is, is the same as Margaret Millis, and whose children gave an interview, or one of the one of her children gave an interview in the uh, mid-20th century, 50s, 60s, talking about family lore, in their family um, where, you know, there was a, an attack from Jack the Ripper or something like that. And I don't know the details of any of this. I'd like to, but that's very compelling. It's not proof of anything. But it is interesting to note that I'm suggesting one day that this happened to Margaret Melis, and then the next day someone's finding that this woman's family has family lore about an attack on by Jack the Ripper. It's pretty interesting, right? So there you go.
0: Right, and when you ordered the uh, documents from the London Hospital, you must have seen that Margaret Millos was admitted, according to the admittance records, on September 1st, and this is another thing that's been brought up since the publication of your book. We know that Polly Nichols was discovered in the early hours of the 31st, so how do you reconcile an attack on Margaret happening nearly... Um, in, in moments prior to the murder of Paulie Nichols uh, with a seeming delay in her being recorded as being admitted to the London hospital.
1: Well, when I, when I contacted the archivist um, to request uh, these records, you know, and when I, my original request was ch- I really just like one, one day's worth of records. I said, start me at like, um, you know, late night on the thirtieth, and, and carry me through for the next couple of days, and send me the surgeons and the physicians' records. And Margaret is on the surgeons' records. And the uh, if you'll notice that entry when it was put in on September first has a lot of information on it. Um, you know, damage to the radial artery, all of that. Now I'm, I'm assuming that when Margaret uh, Millis showed up there, um, she didn't stand there giving all of her personal information as they wrote it down and I am assuming that they didn't say to her, "Um, what's wrong with you? And she said, well, I appear to have an injury to the radial uh, artery of my arm. And uh, so I'm thinking that all that information may have been entered in at a later time. Um, And that being September 1st certainly the archivists believe that um, Millis was put in at the time that I requested so um, there you go that's that's my suggestion um, Now maybe it did happen on September 1st maybe Millis isn't the woman we're looking for um, maybe there but you take Millis out of the equation and you still have a bloody handprint and honey, honey's muse and a woman screaming. Um, so you still have a surviving Jack the Ripper victim out there then that we don't have a name for. Uh, and if that's what certain researchers want, then that's what they have. They can take Millis out and say, here's a woman we don't have a name for yet, and then they can go find a name like I've done. Um, I don't, they haven't seen them doing that yet. They're just like trying to say, gotcha, and that's fine. That's fun for them. But I think Millis right now is the best uh, alternative, or the best option, it might be the only option um, for this. And it's important to note again that research done recently has shown um, some supportive evidence for this in the way of her family lore. I, I want to stress I don't put a lot of faith in family lore, but I do think it's one of those things where there's usually a negative truth to it. Um, there's something to it a lot of times, and there might be to that too. So, yeah. But that's why, it, that's one reason why it might say September first, but she actually arrived there in an earlier time, is just when that was entered in. Right, because you
0: found no other possible candidate by searching from the morning of August thirty-first throughout the and forward to the entire month of September. Um, there's no other option. So, if a woman was attacked in Brady Street, then she didn't check herself into the London Hospital. Is what you can safely
1: say. Correct. And also, um, other years ago, some other researchers who I talk about in my book uh, were following up leads by some newspaper reports, some uh, newspaper reports that appeared uh, later in the month. And they were trying to track down a surviving victim of Jack the River, who they believed had hit the, been in the hospital within this 10-day period, given by the newspapers. They looked, and they couldn't find anyone except Susan Ward, who I discuss in a lot of detail in my book, um, who clearly is not a ripper victim. She she just clearly was not. Uh, Debs had put the kibosh on that years ago, but then I found some other information that I thought was interesting, and I include that in the book. But she's not a candidate. So what that means is these newspaper reports were either completely mistaken, and they, they cited a police source. They were either completely mistaken, there was no such woman who was stabbed in the arm or whatever and survived, or, um, they had their dates wrong because there was no woman in that 10 day period. So that means it either happened outside of that 10 day period or it never happened. If we take the angle that it did happen, but it was, they had their dates range wrong and we look outside that 10 day period. voila, Margaret Millis, Mallows, what even, I'm gonna, I'm used to saying Millis. Um, And thinking that, so that's what's coming out, but the latest research suggests it might have been Mallow's.
0: So let's um, move along and discuss the timing of the Nichols murder, which is um, another really interesting part in this section of your book. I mean, when you think about where the police, how how quickly they converged on the scene, when when you have uh, Cross and Paul's, uh timing's coming down Brady Street and entering Buck's Row. And then immediately after discovering the body of Nichols, P.C. Neal came into Buck's Row from Whitechapel Road via Thomas Street coming from essentially the opposite direction of the way that cross and Paul encountered the body. And he was able to signal Thane on Brady street itself. So they could have almost cornered. I mean, you talk about the vanishing act if the timings were so as such, you know, of course, uh, even a minute or two or five minutes or say, let's say a lapse could have allowed for his escape, but, and then you had Meisen. Now he was further away down on, uh, uh, by Hanbury street on the opposite direction of Whitechapel road. But uh, there were, you could safely say that the cops were crawling all over the place at, at the time of the murder, um, and then and then you bring in the the account of the the train passing which you say indicates that the nichols murder could have occurred up to 10 minutes um prior to cross arriving at the scene um even though then the doctor later on says that she's only been deceased for a few minutes so can you go into some of that for us
1: well, just to Harriet Lilly. First of all, when you talk about medical evidence and estimated times, even today in the year 2017 it's understood that when a doctor gives an estimated time of death, that is not ever considered hard evidence in, in, if it can, where it conflicts with better evidence, um, such as uh, eyewitness, uh, you know audio, video recording, something like that. Um, so in this case, uh, we have Harriet Lilly, and she's hearing uh, moaning and talking, and she hears a goods train's pass, and that's three thirty in yet. Um, but supposedly Nichols isn't murdered for you know like what another ten minutes. So what I'm suggesting is maybe, and that's all it is, because I don't know when that good train passed. I'm I'm just reading it, right? So I don't know that, that it passed at three thirty. Um, but uh, let's say it did then that, that means that uh, Charles Cross came along quite some time after the Ripper had left. And if the Ripper had left not being interrupted, then he may have gotten what he came for, which goes back to the whole ut- uterus thing. And it uh, also, again, suggests Cross may not have been uh, the evil you know villain mastermind that he's sometimes painted as being. And he was literally just a guy on his way to work. Who maybe should have taken a different way that day. And so that's uh, what I'm suggesting. As far as the, the police crawling all over the place, they did appear to be crawling because they weren't seen by many people. Um, you know, and I talk about uh, that in there. Uh, good old boy Patrick Mulshaw, you know, and I, I, I put him under the light. He's often discounted because he's written off as of some lazy old guy dozing off all the time, right? Um, but what I found interesting when I took, when I took a look at him was that he wasn't talking about that night. He was talking about how he's there every night and, and he only ever sees like PC Neil come by every couple of hours. And I thought that was worth bringing up in the book. And I don't want to, I'm not one of those people who likes to pick on the cops, but I try and remain, but I'm also not a police apologist who tries to sugarcoat everything to where they all look like. You know, perfect. uh, You know, like they run on. They look at their watch, and they're supposed to walk a beat in thirty minutes, and it's always thirty minutes. And that's not how humans work, in my opinion. And you get used to. You know, maybe if you have a quiet neighborhood like this, and you make friends, you get a little lazy in your duties sometimes. Or maybe you know, maybe because Mulshaw was there, Neil just didn't happen to go down that particular side street very often. I don't know. But it makes me stop and wonder. I've also always wondered about Neil finding Polly Nichols and then deciding, I'm going to flash my lantern, and then voila, there's thing. He just happened. Well, there he is. Um, or were maybe the two of them already together? And in, and in order to explain why they were together, they can't explain why they were together, because that means at least one of them was off their beat. Um, So Thane then suddenly is on Brady Street and in perfect timing, sees the flash of a lantern and runs down there. Right. So that's what I suggest might have happened. Um, I'm not doing Thane any disservices because we already know he was wandering off his beat and handing his cape off to people and then lying about it, this and that. Um, So uh, I'm not saying they're bad cops at all. I'm saying that they got caught with their pants down maybe. And that could, could, and that that had they been doing their jobs, maybe Annie Chapman wouldn't have been murdered. I don't know. You never know. It's a a big what if. But I think these are things that should be considered and taken on board. Um, You know, you've got on one hand, you've got the French reporologist who just thinks the police like simultaneously idiots and also like some sort of a genius conspiracy. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, the ardent police, what I call police apologists, but I understand they don't like that term. But, uh, you know, who just, the police can do no wrong and, and they don't want to talk about this stuff and, and you're insulting the police if you do discuss it. And then in the middle is me. You know, I'm just like, it is what it is. Let's just call it what it is and move on everyone's an individual, look at the case, the scenario, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And so that's what I'm doing. But I'm not saying any of these were bad cops at all or crooked or anything like that, or that they did anything too wrong. um, Other than with the possible exception of Thane, who could have saved maybe three Slaughtermen a whole lot of trouble. If he had just said, yeah, they had my case, you know, and I told him about the murder and that's why they showed up when they did. Right. Um,
0: but just for the sake of discussion, let's take the police at their word that Thane was at the top of at Brady Street in Bucks Row and, and that Neil came up the Thomas Street uh, sticking to his beat. And then you have Cross. It's kind of like you have to take Cross, if you take Cross at his word that he had his time exact as to when he leaves his house, and that route has actually been timed, and then assuming the train was on time, or even five minutes late, it's like the the confluence of all these people at that scene, Thane didn't see anyone, Neil didn't see anyone, Meisen didn't see anyone, Cross and Paul didn't see anyone, but even a five-minute here uh, on one side or another, as far as timing goes with the train still allows for ample time for the Ripper to escape unseen by any of these witnesses. So I don't know that, uh, I mean, I I don't, I don't, I'm not a Lechmere supporter by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, but excluding him based on the timing of these events and the train passing is, is kind of difficult because, you know, everybody could have gotten their times wrong and, and uh, cross could have gotten his times wrong. The train passing could have It could
1: have been delayed. Do you see what I'm saying? No, I'm not entirely sure what the point is. I'm, you know, I'm a little slow. You're, you've really thought about this stuff a lot, clearly. So you're saying that, um, well, in order for
0: a cross to uh, be excluded, as far as I, if I understand your theory, um, hinges upon the train passing on schedule.
1: Oh well, no, no, I'm not. I actually don't talk about now. Charles Cross is the witness. This is one thing I want to make clear. Charles Cross is the witness. Charles Lechmere is the Jack, the, the recently alleged Jack the Ripper suspect. And they're the same person. Um, But since Charles Cross liked the name Cross, that's what he chose to go by. For those of us who don't think him a murderer, why rob him of his preferred name? Um, For those who think he's a dastardly villain, he becomes Lechmere. And so I talk of Charles Cross in my book because to me he's a witness. And I actually don't spend any time talking about the theory about him and none of this evidence is presented as a way of arguing against him as the ripper because I'm writing this book for the next generation of ripperologists 10, 20 years down the line and they're not going to take this whole Lechmere thing seriously. So I don't want to bore, I don't want to date my book by talking about a theory that's just hot, like right now or last year or whatever, next year. So, but so I'm not trying to exclude uh, Charles Cross at, at all. It's just kind of happening through my research. It's the, the onus is on those who want to make him Jack the Ripper. they got to come up with something better than he found the body. Uh, because right now that's the entirety of the argument is pretty much Robert Paul came up and found uh, you know Charles Cross standing near the body. Um, and that could have happened. I mean, everybody was discovered by someone, right? So... Uh, You know, you got to have something a little more than that, in my opinion. So I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the Lechmere as the Ripper theory um, unless someone gives me. Now, I will. If someone comes up with something really good that doesn't require chess pieces moving at a particular time, um, but something documented maybe showing that he murdered people later or he was a suspect in a brutal knife murder, you show me that, I'm going to be all ears. But until then, it's not something I really spend a lot of time thinking about.
0: If you, like I said, take the police at their word that they were where they say they were, um, he could have been almost cornered in.
1: Could have been, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think he was prepared for that. Um, I think the Ripper was always prepared for these sorts. You got to remember, he had a knife; those cops didn't. Mm-hmm. And we know that if, not, if we can't agree on anything else, it's that Jack the Ripper had a knife, and the cops were not standing there, knife in hand. So I think he was ready to push past anyone. He could hear them coming; they couldn't couldn't hear him necessarily. Um, he was hyper vigilant; they were not. And so the, Jack the Ripper had the advantage in these scenarios. Um, but you also got to remember Polly Nichols took Jack the Ripper to that location for intercourse or whatever it is they were going to do. So she knew something about that area. And, and that's what we should trust in a little more is Polly Nichols knew something about that location. And that thing she knew is that this is a safe place to get my DOS money. Um, I'm not going to get arrested in this spot. So what did she know and why, how did she know? It? Well, we know how she knew it. She's probably been there a number of times. Um, so it's it's all these things I figure into the equation you know what I'm saying it's not a hard fact it's it's what I call reading between the lines it, you know we don't have a statement to that effect but we do have Polly Nichols taking a man to that location to have sex she believed it was safe enough to spend 10 minutes there and not get caught so it's reasonable to assume a killer could commit an act like this and not get caught the way you
0: present this murder in your book, it makes the Bucks Row murder more interesting it, do you feel that in previous books and on the message boards one of the more overlooked of the series, of the canonical five anyway, outside of the cross Lechmere debate
1: I think that, and I, I give a lot of credit to certain of the Lechmerians uh, like Ed Stowe and Krister Holmgren um and, and he's known on the internet as David Orson I give credit to these guys and others for turning a lot of making a lot of people stop and look real close at the Polly Nichols murder um, and look at the details there and dig up information that's one of the great things you can do is a lot of people were so eager to prove them wrong that they went out and did all this research and turned up neat stuff. And then it all gets, and then I just get to sit back and look at it all and go, Hey, this is great stuff. What do I think of it? And then that's how this kind of stuff, that's how I write these things. So, um, big credit to them for that. But I agree with you. Yes. I think Mary Kelly is the only murder that's, that really has had what I would consider to be a truly thorough look. I don't even know that I'd put Edo's in the mix. Um, The Goulston Street, I guess, in the next episode, so I won't get into that. But, uh, you know, Mary Kelly has certainly been picked over, and that's why I never got in the fray of that, is because when I go onto a Mary Kelly thread, I feel like a total newbie. And I don't mind feeling like a newbie. But it's like, um, you know, I got to ask questions and all this kind of stuff because these, some of these folks just know so much, uh, that I don't. So I'm just, I tend to, you know, wander back on over to burner street or, um, but then I read the current threads going on about burner street and they could have, these threads could have been written in 1998. It's like, where have these people been? Um, it's just the same stuff getting rigid. So hopefully they all read my book, which will bring them fully up to speed, and you know as to what really happened in, in Burner Street. But I guess again that we're going to talk about that next time.
0: All right. Well, uh, let's uh, start to wrap this up, Tom. We've only touched less than half of what is in your new book. Next time you come on, we'll discuss in detail the El- Elizabeth Stride murder in which you go into a lot of different areas. You talk about the Batty street lodger. you have a section on Israel Swartz. And then later on in the additional chapters that you included in the book, there's a section on McCarthy in there. And there's just a whole lot more to discuss. Which we will have to make this at least a two-parter, uh, if that's good with you.
1: Man, I, I, you know, I could do a twelve-parter with you, man. <laughs> you know, we only write books, so I have an excuse to come on this show. Most people don't know this, but Mingus, he's hard and fast. If you want his friendship, you gotta, you gotta. Write books and get on his show. I he would take my calls. I write him letters. They come back, return to sender, and uh, he says, "Look, write a book, send me a free copy, and then I will talk to you for a couple of hours." So that's that's why I'm really in this, folks.
0: It doesn't work on everyone. I, I don't know why. I'm so, I'm really successful when it comes to you. I think you're easy. Yeah.
1: Well, Hmm. I'm a Mingus groupie. See, (laughs) I'm a hard and fast Mingus the Merciless groupie. That's just what I am, and I own it. I own it. So, next
0: time you come on, uh, I, you know, let's say two weeks. Does that sound good? two weeks two hours you tell me i'm there um, we'll not only uh cover everything that we have yet that we didn't touch on in your book today but we will also uh i'm going to be bugging you about what might be coming next
1: man that sounds like a I man That's a date i can't wait
0: i can't either i'll have to dress nicer i'll buy you dinner i'll bring a rose hey that would be awesome thanks for being on the show today tom we'll uh, talk to you here in a couple weeks to finish up the show. Have a good one. All right. Thanks Tom. Bye. Bye. And that was of course, Mr. Tom Westcott speaking to us about his new book, Ripper confidential, which as we mentioned is the first part of a two part interview. The second half we'll record in the very near future. Ripper confidential, as well as Tom Westcott's first book, the bank holiday murders, ...are available on Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle formats... ...and I encourage you to get them both to read and enjoy... ...since while you may not agree with all of his conclusions... ...his books are, in my opinion, two of the most well-considered and fresh accounts... ...that have come out about the Whitechapel murders in recent years. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org... ...where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions... ...author interviews and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us and Tom Westcott on the Casebook message boards or look for us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.